Section 59 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 16, The Anglican Settlement and the Scottish Reformation, Part 2, by F. W. Maitland. Mary, Queen of England and Spain, died on the 17th of November, 1558. The young woman at Hatfield, who knew that her sister's days were numbered, had made the great choice. Ever since May, it had been clear that she would soon be queen. The Catholics doubted and feared, but had no other candidate. King Philip was hopeful. So Elizabeth was prepared. William Cecil was to be her secretary, and England was to be Protestant. Her choice may surprise us, when a few months later she is told by the Bishop Alquila that she has been imprudent, he seems for once to be telling the truth. Had there been no religious dissension, her title to the throne would hardly have been contested among Englishmen. To say nothing of her father's will, she had an unrepealed statute in her favor. Divines and lawyers might indeed have found it difficult to maintain her legitimate birth. Parliament had lately declared that her father was lawfully married to Catherine of Aragon, and, with this, good Catholics would agree. But there was another scandal, of which good Protestants might take account. Elizabeth's godfather, the Henrican archbishop and Protestant martyr, had adjudged that Henry was never married to Anne Boleyn. His reasons died with him, but something bad, something nameless, might be guessed. It is sometimes said that Elizabeth's birth condemned her to be Protestant or bastard. But it would be truer to say that, had she cared much about legitimacy, she would have made her peace with Rome. Hints came to her thence that the plenitude of power can set these little matters straight for the benefit of, well, Elizabeth's title and her religion. This disposed princes, and in Papal's eyes, Cranmer's sentence would have been a prejudice in her favor. But pure legitimism the legitimism of the divine entail, was yet in its infancy, and neither Protestant nor Catholic was bound to deny that a statute of the realm may set a bastard on the throne of William the Conqueror. For the people at large it would be enough that the Lady Elizabeth was the only living descendant of old King Henry, and that beyond her lay civil war. The thin stream of Tudor blood was running dry. Henry's will, but its validity might be questioned, had postponed the issue of his elder to that of his younger sister, in other words, the House of Scotland to the House of Suffolk. Mary Stuart was born in Scotland. She could not have inherited an acre of English land, and it was highly doubtful whether English law would give the crown to an alien who was the child of two aliens. Neither her grandmother's second marriage, namely that with Archibald Douglas, whence sprang Lady Lennox and her son Lord Darnley, nor the marriage of Mary Tudor with Charles Brandon, whence sprang Greys and Stanleys, was beyond reproach. Few marriages were beyond reproach in those days of loose morals and conniving law. John Knox at Geneva had, to Calvin's regret, just blown a first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, and, unfortunately, though the tone was new, the tune was not. The Scottish gospeler could only repeat the biblical and other arguments that had been used a century ago by that Lancastrian sage Chief Justice Fortescue. No woman had sat upon the English throne, save Mary, and she, it might be said, was a statutory queen. 
Many people thought that next in right to Elizabeth stood Henry Hastings, who was no Tudor but a Yorkist, and already in 1565 Philip of Spain was thinking of his own descent from Edward. Thus Elizabeth's statutory title stood between England and Wars of the Roses, which would also be Wars of Religion. At this moment, however, she put a difference of creed between herself and the Dauphiness. It may be that in any case, Henry of France, who was in want of arguments for the retention of Calais, would have disputed Elizabeth's legitimacy. It was said that he had been prepared to dispute the legitimacy of her Catholic sister. But had Elizabeth been Catholic, the French and Scottish claim to her throne would have merely been an enemy's insult, an insult to England, a challenge to Spain. As it was, Henry might lay a strong case before the Pope and the Catholic world. Elizabeth was bastard and heretic to boot, and at this moment Paul IV was questioning Ferdinand's election to the empire, because some of his electors were Lutherans. That heretics are not to rule was no new principle. The Counts of Toulouse had felt its edge in the old Albigensian days. After the fall of Calais in January 1558, England was panic-stricken. The French were coming, the Scots were coming, Danes and Hanschids were coming. German troops were being hastily hired to protect Northumberland. Philip's envoy, the Count of Feria, saw incompetence everywhere. The nobles held aloof, while some aged clergymen tried to conduct a war. He hardly dared to think what would happen if a few French ships touched the shore. Since then, there had been some improvement. No invader had landed and Guise's capture of Thoneville had been balanced by Egmont's victory at Gravelines. Shortly before Mary's death, negotiations for a peace were beginning at Chircamp. The outline of the scheme was a restoration of conquest. But Calais stopped the way. The French could not surrender that prize, and they were the more constant in their determination because the King of Spain would not much longer be King of England, and an isolated England would have no conquest to restore. When Elizabeth became queen, Calais was not yet lost. That was the worst of it. Both kings were weary of the war. Behind both yawned gulfs of debt and heresy. But the ruler of the Netherlands was deeply concerned in the recovery of Calais, perhaps more materially, though less sentimentally, than were the English. Feria has reported the profound remark that when Calais was captured, many Englishmen ceased to go to church. A Protestant Elizabeth might have to sign away the last memorial of old glories, and that would not fill the churches. Philip, they might be plain, would not suffer the French to invade England through Scotland, but the tie between Spain and heretical England would be the coolest selfishness. The king's mind would be distracted between his faith and his policy, and if he were compelled to save England from the French, he certainly would not save England for the English. True that for Protestant eyes there was light on the horizon. Anyone could see that there would be religious troubles in France and Scotland. Geneva was active, and Rome seemed to be doting. That summer the Psalms had gone up loudly from the pre aux clairs and a Châtillon had been arrested. That autumn St. Giles of Edinburgh had lain prostrate in the mud. Expectant heirs and royal cadets, Bourbons and Hamiltons, were wavering, Maximilian was listening to an enlightened pastor. France, Scotland, the empire might some day fall to evangelical lords. Good news came from Poland, Bohemia, and Hungary. 
it was even rumored that the pope would at last succeed in shaking philip's faith still the black fact of the moment was that philip and henry were making peace in order that they might crush their respective heretics and england's military weakness was patent to all her soldiers and captains were disgracefully old-fashioned and what gunpowder she had was imported from the netherlands to make a lewd comparison said an englishman england is as a bone thrown between two dogs was this bone to display an irritating activity of its own merely because the two dogs seemed for the moment to be equal and opposite to more than one mind came the same thought they will make a piedmont of england within the country the prospect was dubious the people were discontented defeat and shame pestilence and famine had lately been their lot a new experiment would be welcome but it would miserably fail were it not speedily successful no doubt the fires in smithfield had harmed the catholic cause by confirming the faith and exasperating the passions of the protestants no doubt the spanish marriage was detested but we may overestimate the dislike of persecution and the dislike of spain no considerable body of englishmen would deny that obstinate heretics should be burnt there was no need for elizabeth to marry philip or bring spaniards into the land but the spanish alliance the old anglo-burgundy alliance was highly valued it meant safety in trade and occasional victories over the hereditary foe moreover the english reformers were without a chief beyond elizabeth they had no pretender to the throne they had no apostle no prophet they were scattered over europe and had been quarrelling noxians against coxians in their foreign abodes edward's reign had worn the gloss up the new theology we may indeed be sure that had elizabeth adhered to the old faith she must have quelled plots and rebellions or herself been quelled we look at scotland france and the netherlands and it may be infer that the storm would have overwhelmed her perhaps we forget how largely the tempests that we see elsewhere were due to the momentous choice that she made for england it must probably be allowed that most of the young men of brains and energy who grew to manhood under mary were lapsing from catholicism and that the educated women were falling faster and further london too bonner's london was protestant and london might be worth an abolished mass but when after some years of fortunate and dexterous government we see how strong is the old creed how dangerous is mary stuart as its champion we cannot feel sure that elizabeth chose the path which was or which seemed to be the safest of her own opinions she told strange tales puzzled by her shifty discourse a spanish envoy once suggested atheism when a legal settlement had been made it was her pleasure and perhaps her duty to explain that her religion was that of all sensible people the difference between the various versions of christianity nestoire que bajatel so she agreed with the pope except about some details she cherished the augsburg confession or something very like it she was at one or nearly at one with the huguenots she may have promised her sister but this is not proved to make no change in religion at any rate she had gone to mass without much ado nevertheless it is not unlikely that at the critical time her conduct was swayed rather by her religious beliefs or disbeliefs than by any close calculation of loss and gain she had not her father's taste for theology she was neither prig like her brother nor zealot like her sister 
but she had been taught from the first to condemn the Pope, and during Edward's reign she had been highly educated in the newest doctrines. John Hopper, the father of the Puritans, had admired her displays of argumentative divinity. More than one Catholic who spoke with her in later days was struck by her ignorance of Catholic verity. The Bishop of Aquila traced her phrases to the heretic Italian friars. He seems to have been thinking of Vermegli and Orcu, and there may have been some little truth in his guess. Once, she said, she liked Italian ways and manners better than any other, and sometimes seemed to herself half Italian. Her eyes filled with tears over Peter Martyr's congratulations. She had talked predestination with Fra Bernardino and had translated one of his sermons. The Puritans were persuaded that if she would listen to no one else, she would listen to him. All this might have meant little, but then she had suffered in the good cause. She had been bullied into going to Mass, she had been imprisoned, she had nearly been excluded from the throne. Some ardent Catholics had sought her life, and her suspected heresies had been at least a part of her offending. It would have been base to disappoint all those who had prayed for her and plotted for her, and pleasant it was when from many lands came letters which hailed her as the miraculously preserved champion of the truth. She had a text ready for the bearer of the good news. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. One point was clear. The Henrican Anglo-Catholicism was dead and buried. It died with Henry and was interred by Stephen Gardner. In distant days, its spirit might arise from the tomb, but not yet. The Count of Faria and Bishop Turnstall were at needless pains to explain to the young queen that she was favoring Lutherans and Zwinglians, whom her father would have burnt. But in 1558, nothing was to be gained by mere schism. Her fellow sovereigns, more especially her brother-in-law, could have taught her that a prince might enjoy all the advantages of spotless orthodoxy, and yet keep the Pope at arm's length. Many Englishmen hated popery, but by this time the core of the popery that they hated was no longer the papacy, but the idolatrous mass. The choice lay between Catholicism with its Pope and the creed for which Cranmer and Ridley died. It could scarcely be hoped that the bishops would yield an inch. Very shame, if no worthier motive, would keep them true to the newly restored supremacy of Rome. Happily for Elizabeth, they were few and feeble. Reginald Pollet had hardly outlived Mary, and for one reason or another had made no haste in filling vacant seats. Faria thought the accursed cardinal had French designs, and death had been and still was busy. Only sixteen instead of twenty-six bishops were entitled to attend the critical parliament, and only eleven with the abbot of Westminster were present. Their constancy in the day of trial makes them respectable, but not one of them was a leader of men. The ablest of them had been Henry's ministers, and therefore could be taunted as renegades. A story which came from a good quarter bade us see Elizabeth announcing to the Pope her accession to the throne, and not rejecting Catholicism, until Paul IV declared that England was a papal fief, and she a usurping bastard. Now Carafa was capable of tiny imprudence, and just at this moment seemed bent on reviving the claims of medieval pontiffs, in order that he might drive a long-suffering emperor into the arms of the Lutherans. But it is certain now that in the matter of courtesy, Elizabeth, not Paul, was the offender. She ignored his existence. 
Edward Kane was living at Rome as Mary's ambassador. He received no letters of credence from the new queen, and on the 1st of February, 1559, she told him to come home, as she had nothing for him to do. Meanwhile, the French were thinking to obtain a bull against her. They hoped that at all events Paul would not allow her to marry her dead sister's husband. At Christmastide, 1558, when she was making a scene in her chapel over the elevation of the host, the Pope was talking kindly of her to the French ambassador, would not promise to refuse a dispensation, but could not believe that another Englishwoman would want to marry a detestable Spaniard. A little later he knew more about her and detained Carum, a not unwilling prisoner, at Bourne, March 27th. Not because she was base-born, but because she had revolted from the Holy See. He had just taken occasion to declare in a bull that princes guilty of heresy are deprived of all lawful power by the mere fact of their guilt, February 15th. This edict, though it may have been mainly aimed at Ferdinand's three Protestant electors, was a salutary warning for Elizabeth and Anthony and Maximilian. But no names were named. Philip had influence enough to balk the French intrigue and protect his sister-in-law from a direct anathema. The Spaniard may in Paul's eyes have been somewhat worse than a heretic, but the quarrel with the other Habsburg, and then the sudden attack upon his own scandalous nephews, were enough to consume the few remaining days of the fierce old man. He has much to answer for, but it was no insult from him that made Elizabeth a Protestant. No time was lost. Mary's death, November 17, 1558, dissolved a parliament. Heath, Archbishop of York and Chancellor of the Realm, dismissed it, and with loyal words proclaimed the new queen. Within three weeks, December 5th, Ritz went out for a new parliament. Elizabeth was going to exact conformity to a statutory religion. For the moment, the statutory religion was the Roman Catholic, and she would have taken a false step if, in the name of some higher law, she had annulled or ignored the Marian statutes. At once, she forbade innovations, and thus disappointed the French, who hoped for a turbulent revolution. A new and happy etc. was introduced into the royal style, and seemed to hint, without naming, a headship of the church. Every change pointed one way. Some of the old councillors were retained, but the new councillors were Protestants. William Cecil, then aged 38, had been Somerset's, and was to be Elizabeth's secretary. Like her, he had gone to Mass, but no Catholic doubted that he was a sad heretic. The Great Seal, re-signed by Heath, was given to Nicholas Bacon. He and Cecil had married sisters who were godly ladies of the new sort. The imprisoned heretics were bailed, and the refugees flocked back from Frankfurt, Zurich, and Geneva. Hardly was Mary dead before one bishop was arrested for an inopportune sermon, November 27th. Another preached at her funeral, December 13th, and praised her for rejecting that title which Elizabeth had not yet assumed. He, too, was put under restraint. Mary's chief mourner was not her sister, but, appropriately enough, the Lady Lennox, who was to have supplanted Elizabeth. No bishop preached the funeral sermon for Charles V, and what good could be said of that Catholic Caesar was said by the Protestant Dr. Bill, December 24th. The new queen was artist to the fingertips. The English Bible was rapturously kissed. The tower could not be re-entered without uplifted eyes and thankful words. 
her hand it was a pretty hand shrank so folks said from bonner's lips christmas day was chosen for a more decisive scene the bishop who was to say mass in her presence was told not to elevate the host he would not obey so after the gospel out went elizabeth she could no longer witness that idolatry three weeks later january fifteenth she was crowned while calvin was dedicating to her his comments on isaiah what happened at the coronation is obscure the bishops it seems swore fealty in the accustomed manner the epistle and gospel were read in english it is said that the celebrant was one of the queen's chaplains and that he did not elevate the host it is said that she did not communicate she was anointed by the bishop of carlisle whose rank would not have entitled him to this office had not others refused it at length the day came for a parliament january twenty fifth a mass was said at westminster early in the morning at a later hour the queen approached the abbey with her choir singing in english the last of the abbots came to meet her with monks and candles away with those torches she exclaimed we can see well enough and then edward's tutor dr cox late of frankfort preached and he preached it is said for an hour and a half the peers all standing the negotiations between spain england and france had been brought to a pause by mary's death but were to be resumed after a brief interval during which elizabeth was to make up her mind some outwardly amicable letters passed between her and henry she tried to play the part of the purebred englishwoman who should not suffer for the sins of the spanish mary but the french were not to be coaxed out of calais and she knew that they were seeking a papal bull against her it became plain that she must not detach herself from spain and that even with philip's help calais could only be attained after another war for which england was shamefully unready then in the middle of january came through feria the expected offer of philip's hand elizabeth seemed to hesitate had doubts about the pope's dispensing power and so forth but in the end said that she did not mean to marry and added that she was a heretic philip it seems was relieved by the refusal he had laboriously explained to his ambassador that his proposal was a sacrifice laid upon the altar of the catholic faith he had hopes which were encouraged in england that one of his austrian cousins ferdinand or charles would succeed where he had failed secure england for orthodoxy and protect the netherlands from the ill example that a heretical england would set meanwhile the great treaty of chateau cambrice was in the making elizabeth tried to retain philip's self-interested support and she retained it without substantial aid from england he would not fight for calais she would have to sign it away but so earnest had he been in this matter that the french covenanted to restore the treasured town after eight years and further to pay half a million of crowns by way of penalty in case they broke their promise no one supposed that they would keep it and still they had consented to make the retention of calais a just cause for war and elizabeth could plausibly say that some remnants of honor had been saved but the clouds collected once more new differences broke out among the negotiators who had half a world to regulate and before the intricate settlement could be completed a marriage had been arranged between philip and one of henry's daughters elizabeth of france not elizabeth of england was to be the bride the conjunction was ominous for heretics from the first days of february to the first days of april 
the negotiations had been pending. Meanwhile, in England, little had been accomplished. It had become plain that the clergy in possession, but there was another and expectant clergy out of possession, would not yield. The Convocation of Canterbury met when Parliament met, and the lower house declared for transubstantiation, the sacrifice of the Mass, and the Roman supremacy. Also, it idly protested that laymen were not to meddle with faith, worship, or discipline. February 17, 1559. The bishops were staunch. The English Church, by its constitutional organs, refused to reform itself. The Reformation would be an unprecedented state stroke. Probably the assembled commons were willing to strike. The influence of the crown had been used on the Protestant side, but Cecil had hardly gathered the reins in his hand, and the government's control over the electoral machinery must have been unusually weak. Our statistics are imperfect, but the number of knights and burgesses who, having served in 1558, were again returned in 1559, was not abnormally small, and with the House of 1558 Mary had been well content. Also, we may see at Westminster not a few men, who soon afterwards are hinderers of true religion, or at best only faint professors, but probably the nation at large was not unwilling that Elizabeth should make her experiment. A few creations and restorations of peerages strengthened the Protestant element among the lords. The Earl of Bedford and Lord Clinton appeared as proxies for many absent peers, and of all the lords, Bedford, Francis Russell, was the most decisively committed to radical reform. The Howards were for the Queen their cousin, the young Duke of Norfolk, England's one Duke, was at this time ardently Protestant, and in the next year was shocked at the sight of the undestroyed altars. Money was cheerfully voted. The Queen was asked to choose a husband, and professed her wish to die a maid. She may have meant what she said, but assuredly did not mean that it should be believed. A prudently phrased statue announced that she was lawfully descended and come of the blood royal. Another declared her capable of inheriting from her divorced and attainted mother. The painful past was veiled in general words. There was little difficulty about a resumption of those tenths and first fruits which Mary had abandoned. Round the question of ecclesiastical supremacy, the battle raged, and it raged for two months and more, February 9th to April 29th. Seemingly, the Queen's minister carried through the lower house a bull, which went the full Henrik in length, in its Cicero papalism and its severity. Upon pain of a traitor's death, everyone was to swear that Elizabeth was the supreme head of the Church of England. In the upper house, to which the bill came on the 27th of February, the bishops had to oppose a measure which would leave the lives of all open Romanists at the mercy of the government. Few though they were, the dozen prelates could still do much in a house where there were rarely more than thirty temporal lords, and probably Cecil had asked for more than he wanted. On the 18th of March, the project had taken a far milder form. Forfeiture of office and benefice was to be the punishment of those who would not swear. Against this more lenient measure, only two temporal lords protested. But a Catholic says that other good Christians were feigning to be ill. The bill went back to the commons, then back with amendments to the lords, who read it thrice on the 22nd. Easter fell on the 26th, and it had been hoped that by that time Parliament would have finished its work. 
very little had been done. Doctrine and worship had hardly been touched. Apparently an attempt to change the services of the church had been made, had met with resistance, and had been abandoned. Elizabeth was in advance of the law and beckoned the nation forward. During that Lent, the court sermon had been the only sermon, the preacher, Scorry or Sandys, Grindle or Cox. A papist excited fancy saw a congregation of five thousand and heard extravagant blasphemy. On Easter Day, the Queen received the communion in both kinds. The news ran over Europe. Antoine de Bourbon, on the same day, had done the like at Paul. Mary of Lorraine had marked that festival for the return of all Scots to the Catholic worship. The colloquy of Westminster follows. There was to be a trial by battle in the Abbey between chosen champions of the two faiths. Its outcome might make us suspect that a trap was laid by the Protestants. But it is by no means certain that the challenge came from their side, and the Spanish ambassador took some credit for arranging the combat. The colloquy of Westminster stands midway between that of Worms, 1557, and of Poissy, 1561. The Catholics were wont to get the better in these feats of arms, because, so soon as Christ's presence in the Eucharist was mentioned, the Protestants fell a-fighting among themselves. Apparently on this occasion the rules of the debate were settled by Heath and Bacon. The great seal had passed from an amiable to an abler keeper. The men of the old learning were to defend the use of Latin in the services of the Church, to deny that a particular church can change rites and ceremonies, and to maintain the propitiatory sacrifice of the Mass. Their first two theses would bring them into conflict with national feeling, and at the third point they would be exposed to the united force of Lutherans and Helvetians, for the sacrifice and not the presence was to be debated. It was a less advantage for the Reformers that their adversaries were to speak first, for there was to be no extempore argument but only a reading of written dissertations in the choir of the abbey before council lords commons and multitude the combatants took their places on friday the thirty first of march at once the catholics began to accept against the rules that they were required to observe dr cole however maintained their first proposition and dr home read the protestant essay the reformers were well content with that day's work and the applause that followed on monday the second question was to be handled of what happened we have no impartial account we do not know what had passed between heath and bacon or whether the catholic doctors were taken by surprise howbeit they chose the worst course they wrangled about procedure and refused to continue the debate apparently they were out of heart and leaderless Two of the bishops were forthwith imprisoned by the council for intemperate words, and thus the Catholic party in the House of Lords was seriously weakened at a critical moment. Moreover, the inference that men do not break off a debate with preliminary objections when they are confident of success in the main issue, though it is not always just, is always natural. The next day Parliament resumed its work. Meanwhile, Elizabeth had at length decided that she would not assume the Henrican title, though assuredly she had meant that it should be, as it had been offered to her. Women should keep silence in the churches, so there was difficulty about a dumb head. She had managed to get a little credit from Philip's envoy, and a little from zealous Calvinists, by saying that she would not be head of the church. 
and she could then tell appropriate persons that she scorned a style which the pope had polluted so cecil had to go to the commons and explain that there must be a new bill and a new oath he met with some opposition for there were who held that the queen was supreme head jure divino ultimately a phrase was fashioned which declared that she was the only supreme governor of the realm as well as in all spiritual or ecclesiastical things or causes as in temporal and that no foreign prince or prelate had any ecclesiastical or spiritual authority within her dominions however among other statutes of henry the eighth one was revived which proclaims that the king is head of the church and that by the word of god all ecclesiastical jurisdiction flows from him catholics suspected that elizabeth's husband would be head of the church if not head of his wife and saw the old title concealed behind the new etc protestant lawyers said that she could take the title whenever she pleased sensible men saw that having the substance she could afford to waive the irritating name on the fourteenth of april the bill was before the lords there were renewed debates and more changes and the famous act of supremacy was not finally secured until the twenty ninth in the last days of an unusually long session a bill for the uniformity of religion went rapidly through both houses april eighteenth to twenty eighth the services prescribed in a certain book of common prayer and none other were to be lawful the embryonic history of this measure is obscure an informal committee of protestant divines seems to have been appointed by the queen to prepare a book it has been thought that as the basis of their labors they took the second book of edward the sixth but desired a further simplification of ceremonies on the other hand there are some signs that cecil and the queen thought that the second book which had hardly been introduced before it was abrogated had already gone far enough or too far in the abolition of accustomed rites all this however is very uncertain our guess may be that when men were weary of the prolonged debate over the supremacy and its continuance was becoming a national danger for violent speeches had been made the queen's advisers took the short course of proposing the book of fifteen fifty two with very few changes at such a moment relief might be found in what could be called a mere act of restoration and the edwardian book however unfamiliar was already ennobled by the blood of martyrs there are signs of haste or of divided counsels for the new book when it came from the press differed in some little but not trivial matters from that which parliament had expressly sanctioned the changes sanctioned by parliament were few an offensive phrase about the bishop of rome's detestable enormities was expunged apparently by the house of lords in addition from older sources was made to the words that accompanied the delivery of bread and wine to the communicant whereby a charge of purus wanglinism might be obviated at the moment it was of importance to elizabeth that she should assure the german princes that her religion was augustinian for they feared and not without cause that it was helvetian a certain black rubric which had never formed part of the statutory book fell away it would have offended lutherans we have reason to believe that it had been inserted in order to meet the scruples of john knox of what was done in the matter of ornaments by the statute by the rubrics of the book and by injunctions that the queen promptly issued it would be impossible to speak fairly without a lengthy quotation of documents the import of which became in the nineteenth century a theme of prolonged and inconclusive disputation 
it must here suffice that there are few signs of any of the clergymen who accepted the prayer-book either having worn or having desired to wear in the ordinary churches there was at times a little more splendor in cathedrals any ecclesiastical robe except the surplice but to return to elizabeth's parliament we have an unfairly good authority that nine temporal lords including the treasurer the marquis of winchester and nine prelates two bishops were in jail voted against the bill and that it was only carried by three votes unfortunately at an exciting moment there is a gap perhaps a significant gap in the official record and we cease to know what lords were present in the house but about thirty temporal peers had lately been in attendance and so we may infer that some of them were inclined neither to alter the religion of england nor yet to oppose the queen on the fifth of may the bishops were fighting in vain for the renovated monasteries on the eighth parliament was dissolved end of section fifty nine